From KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Hey, new friends. I've been obsessed with one particular song lately. I know what you're thinking. And no, I'm not a baby boomer yelling at the noise you kids call music. I'm Solomon Giorgio, and I'm a music fanatic. But my music knowledge is mostly limited to the astrological signs of each and every Spice Girl. Then, I met a reporter who told me all about Louie Louie. It was one of the first and only songs that I ever learned how to play on the guitar. It's very simple chords, isn't it? Yeah, it's very simple. This is David Weinberg. He's a reporter for KCRW, and he has spent the last year as an unofficial expert on this song. And to this day, if you ask me right now to sing Louie Louie, I don't know that I could sing it and get the lyrics right. I mean, like, the beauty of Louie Louie is like as long as you just like belt it out with enthusiasm, like that's all that matters. As long as you get to the point where everyone screams Louie Louie at the same yeah. time and spill beer all over yeah, themselves. Yeah, that's the whole point of the song, you know. Maybe you've heard it a bunch, but Louie Louie is a cornerstone of rock and roll. Practically everyone who's ever touched an electric guitar has banged out their own version. Whether it's a 15-year-old in their garage or Black Flag. Or Blondie. Or even the Fat Boys. You probably think the Kingsman version was the first one. And that's a good guess. It's what I thought too. But it ain't. That was Richard Berry. Richard Berry wrote and recorded the song in South L.A. in the late 50s. I look at Louie Louie and I say, don't ask me why this song has been recorded, has been, has been so controversy. I, 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 I can't understand and I refuse now to even try. I'm just going to flow with it, you know, like, like uh, they said the spice was the flow, you know, so I'm just going to flow with the spice. Louie Louie is the spice. David Weinberg is going to tell us about Barry and how the song he wrote became a national phenomenon and eventually triggered an FBI investigation. Any student of history will tell you, when you ban something, like, get ready for it to fly out the door. So don't you dare go anywhere. From KCRW, this is Lost Notes. It's a warm April night in Anaheim, California, 1955. Richard Berry is sitting in his dressing room at the Harmony Park Ballroom. He's about to go on stage. So you got a black guy in Orange County singing R&B to white kids in the most segregated part of Southern California. Suddenly, his ears perk up. The opening band is a Latin trio, and through the wall, Barry can hear them playing. All he's really hearing is the beat. That was part of what was important about it. It's that beat that changes Richard Berry's life forever. When he hears it, he reaches for the nearest scrap of paper. He scrawls out a name, and actually, he writes it twice. From that scrap of paper, a song emerges, one that becomes a powerful force in America. That name that Richard Berry wrote down on a scrap of paper was Louie, which became the title of the song, Louie Louie, a song that years later became an anthem and one of the most recorded songs in history. But all of that happened by chance. Barry's version, the original recording of Louie Louie, wasn't the one that became a huge hit. The one that rose to the top of the charts was recorded by a band of white kids, the Kingsmen from the Pacific Northwest, 
who were still in high school when they recorded it in 1963. And against all odds, against all logic, it was their version that became the most famous. Because if you listen close, the recording is kind of terrible. The singer's problem is that there's a boom mic over his head, and he thinks he has to stretch his neck up to be heard while he's singing. (laughs) Dave Marsh is a music writer and author of the book Louie Louie, the history of the world's most famous rock and roll song. Unfortunately, these guys were in high school and had no goddamn idea what they were doing, none whatsoever. The singer Jack Eli, who's wearing braces, sang into the wrong part of the microphone. Which is why, on the band's first take of Louie Louie, the lyrics are nearly impossible to understand. And Eli screws up and comes in too early on a verse. And then there is the moment when the drummer, Lynn Easton, drops his drumsticks mid-song and yells out the word, fuck. So after that first disastrous take, the band naturally expected to do another one. After all, you can't yell fuck in the middle of a song and expect it to become a huge radio hit, right? But because studio time was expensive and the producer was a cheapskate, they called it a rap. And the Kingsman's fate was sealed forever. The idea that the Kingsman's version, this disastrous amateur recording, would become the definitive recording, it's totally bonkers. But it also makes total sense. This is no mortal song we're talking about. This is Louie Louie, a rock and roll miracle that throughout its strange life defied all logic. Louie Louie gets its power from its simplicity, from its primitive howl in the face of all that is proper and refined. It's the essence of rock and roll distilled into three chords and a haphazard pile of indecipherable words. It's a disaster of a recording, sure, but it's a magnificent disaster. But all of that came years after that warm April night in Southern California, when Richard Berry heard that beat coming through the wall of his dressing room. God, man, you know, like, what a heavy hook, you know, I mean. And I I said, I I gotta write a song about this. It was never easy for Richard Berry to get around. His whole life, he walked with a limp. Richard said that he fell off a roof when he was a teenager. Richard's childhood friend tells a different story that Richard was caught up in the Superman craze and jumped off the roof thinking he could maybe fly. In 1953, by the time Richard Berry was in high school in South Central Los Angeles, he was already a successful musician, putting out records with his group, The Flares. At that time, Los Angeles was home to more record labels than any other city in the country, and demand for new music was high. There were all these storefront labels that were popping up, you know, in the 1950s. Most of them were black-owned. Jim Dawson is a writer and was a close friend of Richard Berry. So there was a real entrepreneurial spirit, you know, in what we now call South Central at that time. 
before Barry wrote one of the greatest rock and roll anthems in history. He came to play a prominent role in many of the greatest records to come out of the L.A. doo-wop era, including one of the biggest hits of the 1950s. It was the Thanksgiving Eve, and it was really fog. I mean, it was, it was like zero visibility. This is a recording of Richard Berry from an interview he did in 1985. And, uh... Maxwell Davis, actually, who was the A&R man at that time, called me, and he says, well, Richard, he said, uh, we want you to come down. We've got this girl here. Her name is Etta James, and we're doing a record on her, and we want you to come and help out with the background. And I said, hey, man, you know, like, can't even see out there, you know? And uh, they said, well, you know, just take your time and come. Like, it was about 11 o'clock then. So Richard jumped in his car and drove through the fog to the studio, a trip that normally took 15 minutes, but it took him an hour and a half that night. I got down there, so here's this young girl, and I said, well, you know, now what's going on? And then she starts singing, you know, and I said, wow, man, you know, this chick can really sing. Over the next few hours, Barry and James went back and forth, writing the song as they recorded, Barry singing the role of Henry. Actually doing the song from scratch, which I didn't get any credit for. But again, it was Edda's record, so I just became like a figurehead of being Henry. What do I have to do to make you love me too? I got to roll with me, Henry. All right, baby. Roll with me, Henry. Mean maybe. Roll with me. Around the time that Roll With Me Henry was climbing the charts, Barry had a standing Sunday night gig at the Harmony Park Ballroom down in Orange County. A gig that would ultimately change his life forever. It was at that gig where he first heard the Rilera brothers play El Loco Cha-Cha and came up with the idea for Louie Louie. For all the times you may have heard Louie Louie, there is a very good chance that you have no idea what the song is actually about. It's sung by a lovesick Jamaican sailor who's about to set sail across the sea to be with his love. When Barry recorded Louie Louie with the Pharaohs, no one thought it would be a hit. It was released as the B-side to what Barry had expected to be a hit, an R&B cover of You Are My Sunshine. If you listen to the Pharaohs saying, and you listen to these harmony things, we were doing all these pretty ninths and seven chords in You Are My Sunshine. So that was going to be the number one record, You Are My Sunshine. You are my sunshine. You Are My Sunshine was not a number one record. In fact, it was pretty much a flop. And after its release, Barry was broke, so he got a day job at a record-pressing plant, stocking records in a warehouse. And while he was working there, a familiar song came on the radio. Hello, everyone. This is Hunter Hancock, old H.H., speaking to you direct from Hollywood. And next on Hutton with Hunter, our disc of the day. Right after I got this job, they started playing Louie Louie, and they were playing it like every hour on the hour. 
Local radio DJ Hunter Hancock had taken a liking to the B-side of You Are My Sunshine, and he started playing it every hour. And for some reason, this really upset Barry's boss at the record plant. He was so peed off, you know. He says, why do you have this job? He says, man, get this job to somebody who needs it. You got a record out. I said, yeah, man, but I'm not making any money, you know. So, like, he put me outside in the cold in the storage bin, you know, breaking up all these return records, you know. Every day, Barry would be outside in the cold, smashing records with a hammer. And there's a very good chance that sometimes he had to smash his own records or ones that he'd appeared on, that for whatever reason, customers had decided to return. And all the time, you know, these guys were in the warm part of the building, you know, listen, hey, Richard, they're playing your record again. And I said, well, what the... I care about it, you know. So after one morning, I just took the hammer and I threw it in the bin. And I said, well, if they're playing the record, I'm going to go make some money off of it. And that is exactly what Richard Berry did. Louie Louie became a regional hit. Right out of the gate, the record sold 40,000 copies. And Berry hit the road, playing gigs up and down the West Coast. Before long, uh, Louie Louie was the number one record. And in, in my time, it was the number one record in San Francisco. And all over the Bay Area. I mean, I, I made quite a bit of money and just in the Bay Area alone. I was making grand theft money off of Louis Louis at that time, which was 1956. Things were going great for Barry. He was young and touring on a hit song. But Louis Louis never really caught on outside the West Coast. And within a couple of years, Barry was broke, struggling to write another hit. And then he made the worst financial decision of his life one that cost him millions of dollars. He sold away the rights to what would become one of the most iconic songs in American history. And he did it because he needed money. You see, he'd fallen madly in love with a singer named Dorothy Adams. This is her singing the song, You're So Fine. And Dorothy had been in that doo-wop thing. She was a singer also. Barry asked Dorothy to marry him, and she said yes. And she wanted an engagement ring in order to marry him. He needed $750. He sold all of his songs, including Louie Louie. Barry figured that Louie Louie had run its course, and he'd already made whatever money he could from it. So he sold the publishing and songwriting rights to Louie Louie and a handful of his other songs to Max Fiertag, the man who ran Flip Records, the label that released Louie Louie. After that, Barry bounced around making records for a few small labels, but his career as a hitmaker was pretty much over. By 1960, Richard Barry made his living playing covers in late-night dive bars. Barry had no idea at the time, but in 1962, as he was playing late-night gigs around L.A., Louie Louie was being passed around the Pacific Northwest by white teenagers. Louie Louie, it doesn't become a hit until a white rock band picks it up. It's a familiar story to any student of rock and roll history. Up in Yakima Valley, in a sleepy agricultural town in southern Washington state, Barry Curtis was a seventh grader. In Yakima, we're in a valley... And so we couldn't get the AM radio stations from Seattle and Tacoma, but several musicians would go to Seattle and Tacoma and they'd buy records and bring them back. Curtis first heard Louie Louie 
at an after-school dance. The first time I heard the song Louie Louie was actually by a four-piece a cappella group doing the Richard Berry version without instruments. Curtis was just starting to play music, and at that time, Louie Louie was a staple in the set lists of the teenage rock bands all across the Pacific Northwest. At first, bands played it in the style of Richard Berry's original recording with the Pharaohs, but then the song was transformed by the Wailers, a Tacoma band led by singer Rockin' Robin Roberts. Hello, hello, We were playing it every night. Everybody was. It was kind of the anthem of the Pacific Northwest. Rob Lind also grew up in the Northwest and played sax with the Sonics, an influential garage rock band. When I'd start on the sax and run down to the B-flat to start it, girls would scream and be dragging their boyfriends out on the stage. Then it was chaos. If you were a rock and roll band playing live shows in the Northwest in the early 60s, it was almost a requirement that you play Louie Louie. And the same went for recording. Nearly all the bands of the era recorded their own version of Louie Louie. Paul Revere and the Raiders, the Sonics, and most notably, the Kingsmen. And I told you how that recording went. So how did this flawed version of Louie Louie become one of the biggest hit songs in American history? It was played as the worst song of the week. Arnie Ginsberg, your host up and down the New England coast seven nights a week. A Boston radio DJ named Arnie Woo Woo Ginsberg chose the Kingsman's Louie Louie to play as part of his weekly segment, The Worst Record of the Week. But after Ginsberg played Louie Louie, the phone started ringing. Listeners loved it and wanted to know where they could get a copy. And the song started rising on the charts and getting airplay all over the country. There we have a little bit of song for you. And the song that we feel is still going to be a big hit around. I like that very much. When KEWB, that's going to be very hot sound. You never know what's going to be a hit. And I'll miss my guess if that one isn't. People who liked rock and roll understood that it was a work of some kind of perverse genius. So that made it successful. And then the governor of Indiana stepped in. On January 21st, 1964, the governor of Indiana, Matthew Welsh, received a letter from a teenager who said the lyrics to Louie Louie were dirty. So Welsh and his executive secretary procured a copy of the record and listened to it. At first, they couldn't make out the lyrics. But as Welsh later claimed, after slowing the record down, he could make out the words. And they were so filthy that he said his ears tingled. And Welsh was not the only government official to get a complaint about Louie Louie. On January 30th, the United States Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy received a letter from an angry father. Here's an excerpt. Dear Mr. Kennedy, who do you turn to when your teenage daughter buys and brings home pornographic or obscene materials being sold in every city, village, and record shop in this nation? I would like to see these people, the quote-unquote artist, the record company, and the promoters, prosecuted to the full extent of the law. These morons have gone too far. Along with the letter, the father submitted a copy of the supposed dirty lyrics, which are as follows. Louie, oh no. Grab her way down low. There's a fine little girl waiting for me. She is just a girl across the way. Then I take her all alone. She's never the girl I lay at home. Tonight at 10 or lay her again. 
will buck your girl and by the way and on that chair all lay her there because the lyrics in the kingsman's version of louis louis are so unintelligible the song became a sort of rorschach test in america the listener heard what they wanted to hear like a magnificent cloud drifting across the sky not everyone looks up and sees the same shape and kids in junior high because they are kids in junior high heard phrases like bone in her hair and get her wang on and they wrote down these dirty lyrics and passed them around like a playboy snatched from dad's secret porn stash of course to find out what the real lyrics were all one had to do was contact the record company who put out louis louis and when the fbi launched their investigation that's what they did but when they read the real lyrics a jamaican sea shanty written by richard berry they still didn't think they were the actual words sung by the kingsmen and so began an 18-month FBI investigation. Some of the FBI agents sat around record players listening to Louie Louie at various speeds, trying to hear the words wang on and bone in her hair. While other agents got more exciting assignments, like going to see the Kingsmen on their nationwide tour. In fact, I recall one time specifically in a motel in Massachusetts, I think we were all in one large room, they knock on the door and it was FBI. This is Kingsman keyboard player Barry Curtis again. They checked us out pretty thoroughly, saw nothing was going on, kids drinking Cokes and, oh, smoking cigarettes and watching TV. Later that night, the band played their show to hundreds of teenage fans and a couple of FBI agents. And they couldn't ultimately find anything wrong with our performance, at least in terms of being lascivious. Curtis and his bandmates thought the whole thing was ridiculous. It was a sea shanty. And ultimately, the banning of Louie Louie and all the press it got was the best possible thing that could have ever happened to the Kingsmen. I'll just reiterate what so many others have said about things. If you're going to ban something, be careful, because instead of selling 2 million, it sold maybe 10 million records. And you know, it wasn't a hit for like one summer. It was a hit two summers in a row, which never happens. I mean, it doesn't happen to this day. Maybe a Beatles record. It got to be almost like Beatlemania. It wasn't so much our band was so cool like the Beatles, but our song was so hugely popular that they just assumed we were cool. (laughs) In the end, the FBI's conclusion wasn't that the lyrics weren't dirty. It was that they had no idea what the hell the Kingsmen were saying. In fact, after 18 months of listening to the song over and over again and following the band around... These ace investigators didn't even notice that the drummer yells fuck right in the middle of the song. So the FBI closes its case. And by December of 1963, Louie Louie had climbed to number two on the charts. It never did reach number one. And what song, you might be wondering, beat out Louie Louie for that number one spot? Well, that would be Dominique by The Singing Nun. Do you really think that for a week, while Louis Louis was that hot, that Dominica by the Singing Nun sold more records that week? I don't believe that. I think that that's just what they needed to do because it was too disreputable to let Louis Louis be number one. And I'm dead serious. And I, I think the same thing still goes on today. Meanwhile, Louis Louis' influence spread like wildfire throughout the world. But the man who wrote it, Richard Berry, was largely unaware that his Jamaican sea shanty had entranced young white kids across the globe. 
1978, the movie Animal House was released, and Louie Louie was featured multiple times in the movie. A whole new generation discovered the song as a party anthem for frat boys. And again, it started generating buckets of money for Max Fiertag, the man who bought the song from Richard Berry for $750. Berry, though, lived with his mother in south-central Los Angeles. His marriage to Dorothy had ended. She was now a backup singer with Ray Charles. And Barry was barely getting by, still playing in late-night dive bars. He said he would come out of these clubs in the morning to the sunlight and just think what it's going to be like when he would do this for the last time and come across the threshold and just fall down on his face and die, and nobody would know who the hell he was. And he wouldn't have any money in his pocket to bury himself. During this period, Barry's friend Jim Dawson, a member of the local doo-wop society, would get Barry gigs occasionally here and there. I would pick him up and take him to like a, a cable TV show or something like that. Meanwhile, Louis Louis continued to generate millions of dollars for Max Fiertag. I can never figure out why he wasn't really pissed off, or at least why he didn't show it. He just didn't seem to have a mean bone or an angry bone in his body. He was not an aggressive person. And I think part of the problem was that these guys, especially back then when they were really dealing with the, the white power structure, is they needed a, an asshole, you know, a guy, usually a white guy, an attorney, who could just go in, you know, and would make demands. Richard Berry might have lived out the rest of his life in poverty. But in 1984, a friend of Richard's put him in touch with the kind of white asshole, no offense, who knew how to make demands. A guy named Chuck Rubin. How's the beat going? Da-da-da-t, da-da-t, da-da-da-t, da-da-t. I think that's the best I can do. Chuck Rubin is the founder and president of Artist Rights, a company that helps musicians get the rights to their music back. Barry called Rubin up and told him about how he'd sold the rights to Louie Louie and several other songs for $750. He said that he hoped that I would have some time to look into his case and see whether or not there was anything that could be done. But because Barry sold the rights willingly, he really didn't have much of a case. Nevertheless, Rubin said he would see what he could do. And then, nothing happened. And Barry continued to grind out an existence on welfare. A year went by after his conversation with Chuck Rubin. Then another year. I think a few years. Uh, maybe two. 1986 rolled around. And then this opportunity just opened up. And uh, quite frankly, I felt that we could take advantage of it. And it worked. What happened was that California Cooler, a brand of sugary neon green wine cooler, wanted to launch a big national ad campaign featuring frat boys and sorority girls in swimsuits dancing on the beach to the Kingsman's version of Louis Louis. Over 20 years of research and development have gone into every bottle of California Cooler. When Chuck Rubin got wind of the pending commercial, he saw his opportunity. Even though he had no chance of winning a lawsuit, Rubin figured that just the threat of one might scare California coolers away. And Rubin was right. Fiertag, the man who owned Louis Louis, agreed to make a deal to avoid losing the lucrative commercial contract. He would give Barry 75% of the rights to Louis Louis. But of that 75%, Barry had to give half to Chuck Rubin. It wasn't ideal, but for Barry, half of 75% was better than nothing. And in that first year alone, 
Barry made more money off Louis Louis royalties than he had in his entire career as a musician. Barry was suddenly wealthy, but his life didn't really change much. No, he still lived at home, still lived in his own room. His mother, Bertha, was, she came from Louisiana, so she always had a lot of food, so it was always great. If you show up there, you'd probably eat. Richard Barry was 61 years old when he died in his sleep on January 23rd of 1997. He still lived with his mother in the same house he grew up in, there was little evidence from Barry's appearance that he was rich. Although, there was this one time when he took a cab from Chicago to New York. I got him a booking at a concert over in England. I forgot what it paid. It didn't pay very much. And then, just to sort of make up for it, the, the, the bookers got him a, a, a night at the 100 Club in uh, London. The thing was, Barry didn't fly, ever. So he booked passage on a transatlantic ship from New York to Europe, and took a train to New York from Los Angeles. From L.A., something happened in Chicago. The train broke down or something. So he got a taxi cab, took the taxi cab to New York. I mean, he, you know, he was living high on the hog. I think he, he, he was staying in a, a hotel down at the foot of Hyde Park. I mean, so, you know, so he was spending money. I mean, he probably spent 10000 bucks on, on this trip, and he probably got about 1000 or, you know, 1500 for, for for the show. And it is here in London that I'd like to leave you with one final image of Richard Berry. Having traveled by train, cab, and boat halfway across the planet for a gig at a legendary venue in London, where, sitting on a stage, the author of one of the greatest songs ever written was really, truly loved. It was a real joy for him to go halfway around the world and have all this stuff waiting for him. At this show, there were uh, several thousand young people there. And when he came out there, he was a star. I mean, you know, they really loved him. And he, uh, I guess the way he looked at it, Louis Louis finally paid off for him. With you, in love with you. I'm, I'm you. Today's episode was produced by David Weinberg. He actually put together a playlist with some of the many, many, many versions of Louie Louie. You can find that at kcrw.com slash Lost Notes. Lost Notes is produced by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our executive producer is Nick White. Thanks to Marion Hodges for production assistance. Gideon Brower was the voice of the angry letter-writing father. Thanks to James Austin for letting us use clips of his interview with Richard Berry. And hey, I want to give a big thanks to Eric Perdell at louislouis.net for letting us use photos of Richard Berry. If you're thirsty for more Louis Louis knowledge, that is the place to go. He's also working on a documentary film about the song. On our next episode, more Louis Louis. Okay, no, that was a joke. Please don't believe me. There's actually another Lost Notes episode in your feed right now. I really dig it. It's about the rise and fall of a hip-hop pirate radio station in 1990s Brooklyn. Oh, and you know another thing? While you listen to that, make sure to review us on Apple Podcasts. This show is made with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. Our theme music is by Science Park. I'm Solomon Giorgio. You're my favorite listener. <laughs>